Welcome to a Wednesday night edition of Tisky Sour. I would usually be joined by Dahlia Gabriel on a Wednesday evening, but she is away. But you are in the very, very safe pair of hands of James Meadway. James Meadway, economist extraordinaire, used to work for John McDonnell, now a regular contributor to Navarro Media. Ever since Boris Johnson narrowly survived his vote of no confidence, the cabinet have had one consistent message. The best forward momentum is to look at the next two years, deliver uh, from the shires to the towns to the suburbs and everywhere in between for the people of this country and to look at the agenda we've got because that's what the country expects. It's a good victory for the Prime Minister. Uh, he won comfortably and now he is getting on business cabinet this morning. There's a lot to be done. That's why I'm trying as a cabinet minister and as someone supporting the Prime Minister to bring uh, the party together so that we can focus on, on, a, on a crucial mission of delivery. What we need to do now is come together uh, as, a, as a government, as a, as a party, and that is exactly what we can now do. And what this gives us is the opportunity uh, to put behind us all the stuff that I know the, uh, the media have quite you know, properly wanted to focus on for a very long time, uh, and to do our job, which is to focus on uh, the stuff that I think the public actually want us to be talking about, which is what we are doing to help uh, the people of this country and all the things we're doing to take this country forward. But what are those issues and those policies that will take the country forward? What plans, if any, do the Tories have? Well, since that vote of confidence, the pressure has all been coming from one side. Tory MPs want tax cuts. Graham Brady, who chairs the 1922 committee, told The Times, the best contribution a government can make to tackling inflationary pressures on family budgets is to take less money off people in the first place in the form of tax. I hope we will turn a corner soon and see the tax burden falling. Former cabinet member Esther McVeigh um, complained in The Express, COVID turned Johnson's government into socialists, removing even the most basic freedoms, spending money as if there was no tomorrow and putting up taxes to the highest level in 70 years. Lord Frost is next. He was in charge of Brexit for Boris Johnson's first year and a half in office. He told the BBC, all tax rises that we brought in and the corporation tax ones that are due to come in soon ought to be reversed. So a very consistent message there. And noises are also coming from the current front bench. Trade Minister Penny Morden told The Guardian, to increase revenues and growth for the nation, the government must cut taxes. Um, she, of course, is someone who has been touted as a potential future leader. Clearly, if you want MPs to vote for you in the Conservative Party, you've got to talk about cutting taxes. Members in the current cabinet um, have also joined that chorus. Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng has told the BBC he wanted to see radical tax cuts as soon as possible. For her part, Liz Truss said the government's agenda had to include getting taxes down and getting the economy going. Of course, she is also running for leader, we think. And this is what Health Secretary Sajid Javid said when asked about tax cuts on the day programme. One Conservative Association chair said to us yesterday that she doesn't understand the 400 payment to households to cope with the cost of living. She thinks the conservative way to tackle the cost of living would be to cut taxes. The, the way to help people with cost of living challenges, and it's, it's right that we look at every option uh, that there is, 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 is a combination of things I think are important to have a targeted support. So, for example, in energy bills, the, the, the cut in fuel duty, 
for example, uh, as well as support for those on, on, on the lowest incomes, especially through the welfare system. But also uh, tax cuts are an important part of that. As I say, there have already been some targeted tax cuts. And, and, and like many people, I would like to see more. Like many people, I would like to see more. So as I say, the, the pressure all coming from one direction. Tory MPs want tax cuts. A weaker Boris Johnson. I mean, it seems as if he's going to have to offer some of them. What's your take on this? Does, does Boris Johnson's tight confidence vote mean we're going to get a tax-cutting Tory government? Bear in mind, he's already uh, promised to, Rishi Sunak has already said he wants to cut income taxes. That This is the big thing in his um, spring statement. His, his grand promise in the midst of the cost of living crisis was to say, oh, don't worry, we're going to spend a great deal of money in a couple of years' time. Cutting income tax, which is, of course, a, a favoured uh, Tory thing to do. It's great because you can sort of present it as helping out. Some people aren't on very much. If you cut the basic rate of income tax, you only have to be earning, what, £15,000 a year to start to benefit from that. But of course, it actually means a big tax cut for everybody who earns far more than this. So it's, it's a perfect Tory thing to do. That's already there. That's already budgeted for. They, they've already got this. Anything else they're jumping up and down shouting about now is in addition to tax cuts that they already have planned. Rishi Sunak's response to this, by the way, was in the, the Telegraph this morning, and it's quite instructive about how he works and, and, and where this is likely to land. This is his big economic plan ahead of a speech he'll be making with Boris Johnson next week on uh, what they want to do with the economy over the next couple of years. Uh, and that's all about tax cuts, but it's about corporate tax cuts. It's about saying to corporations, we're going to cut some of the taxes that you need to pay at the minute. I mean, as if you know, they weren't making big enough profits already. This is just handing even more of that money back to shareholders, which, by the way, doesn't mean people's pension funds in the main. It means all sorts of asset managers and other people elsewhere handing more of that money back to their shareholders in the form of profits. And that's how we're going to deal with the, the cost of living crisis. It's, it's kind of mad stuff, really. It's not doing anything directly for anybody on the ground. It's not doing anything about the, the tax cuts, uh, the taxes that people are paying, the prices that people are paying. But that's the very, very sort of treasury thinking that Rishi Sunak has. And, and it's a sign of weakness, I think, that Boris Johnson is not pushing back in this and is not saying, actually, the tax cuts I want are going to be personal taxes got to be this year. We'll see how this plays out. But there's a certain sense in which the institutional weight of the treasury and economic policy making is really starting to come through now. And that means you get bizarre schemes to sort of cut corporate taxes when profits are at an all-time high under the guise of, of bringing about investment. Whether that stands up to lots and lots of jumping up and down from Tory backbenchers and some cabinet ministers about big tax cuts needed now, I don't know. The obvious one to go for is things like shave a bit off VAT on, on certain items. That's quite a, an easy, relatively low-cost uh, option for the Treasury if they have to do this. But where they're looking right now is bizarrely at corporation tax cuts, not at taxes that people actually pay. And what should the left and Labour's position be on this? You know, traditionally, people think the left, they want higher taxes because then you can fund better public services. Obviously, in the last year, we've had the Tories increase the national insurance and, and the left opposed that. What about when it comes to income tax? Should, should the left be calling for higher income tax, lower income tax? What's your stance on taxes and what they should look like. My own view of this is that you've got to treat this as a bit of a Robin Hood sort of approach, that there are people in this country who could really afford to pay more tax, and they are all the way up the other end of the income distribution, a long way from where most people actually sit. You know, average pay in this country is what? Just under 30,000 a year, it's around about that that level. If you're talking about the top 1%, you're earning 150,000 a year, top 0.1%, about a million pounds a year. That's where you should be looking to try and increase taxes over here. What happens to everybody else? I, I would 
tend to think that actually if you've got national insurance contribution increase, if you've got various forms of indirect taxes that people are having to pay on top of rising prices, I don't have a particular problem with saying actually these things should be cut. The national insurance contribution increase in particular was a bad tax rise because it's hitting a load of people in work and it's hitting people who aren't actually earning very much and you're just leaving untouched people who are on huge amounts of money, vast pools of wealth up the other end of society. That's where you should be looking for these things. So you've got to think of this as redistribution. And I think we should be a bit clearer about the need for redistribution. We have a very unequal, increasingly unequal society. COVID made this worse, by the way. COVID just piled up wealth in the hands of the rich whilst everybody else was frankly suffering for that sort of year or so of the lockdowns. That's one of the impacts of COVID. We need to start correcting that. That means taxes as redistribution is what we should be talking about, that we should be trying to make society fairer. And one of the primary aims we've got in this is taxes. And that is going to mean higher taxes for the rich and potentially lower taxes uh, for other people elsewhere. Where do you see the Labour Party going on this? I think I, I saw a story in the papers over the weekend that Labour were thinking of dropping, I think it was Keir Starmer's first pledge in his leadership election, his incredibly dishonest leadership election, to tax the top 5% more. They're now saying, well, at least you know, sources close to the leadership are saying they're going to dump that. Is that the direction of travel you're, you're seeing from the Labour Party at this point? They've, they've sort of made some noises. Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, has made some noises around looking for different ways to tax parts of wealth. The one that they've centred around without ever committing to has been, can you equalise uh, capital gains taxes? In other words, the, the tax you pay when you sell an asset of some sort, uh, whether it's a, a painting or some shares or whatever, that's your capital gain that you make on this and you pay a tax. That tax is much lower than you pay if you went out to work. So you equalise those two taxes. You're going to hit a load of people who trade in assets and not hit a load of other people, and it's just a fairer tax system. So potentially that's that's in the mix, but it's it's kind of bits and pieces. It's not going after some of the bigger ideas we've seen around wealth taxes, proposals from LSE and Warwick, some researchers there a couple of years ago that you could raise you know, taxes on millionaires, a one-off tax would get you 250, 260 billion pounds. Like the, these are sort of the more radical ideas that are out there that you have to start to think about if you're serious about making a fairer society. If, on the other hand, you're just going to flap about and, and, and pretend it's the 1990s still and sort of think, oh dear, we can't talk about increasing taxes. Even though raising taxes for the rich is basically quite popular, you have to be careful how you phrase it. You have to be specific about who you're going to tax here. People get a bit funny about who's rich and who isn't if you kind of talk to them and do some polling and things. Tax Justice uh, UK did some very good work around people's attitudes to tax. But basically the idea of having a fairer tax system and making the economy fairer and society fairer is popular. And if Labour was prepared to go out and say something like this, that could fit into a package of how you would make the economy better, how you'd make uh, society much fairer, and it would benefit most people. Now, if they're too cowardly to start to do this, then that's their loss, and that will cost them in the election in a couple of years' time. But as things stand, it looks to me like there's a whole bunch of people sort of cosplaying the 1990s. They think things can uh, only get better. They think that this is their moment in like 1995 or whatever point they've decided on. Uh, and that's how they're going to play this out. We don't live in that world anymore. They need to move with the times. They need to think about the society they're living, which is much more unequal now than it was back then for a start. There's much more injustice now. Uh, than there was back then. There's much less optimism and confidence about the future, frankly. You need to get into that and say, okay, that means we're going to have to tax some people more at the top and do something for everybody else. And until they start to get that message clear, they're going to continue to twirl around on the economy and not really uh, be too convincing on it. So that's the tax question, which is what is obsessing Tory MPs. Um, the other issue that Boris Johnson, I assume, feels he needs to talk about is fixing the NHS. 
For example, on Tuesday, Adam Bienkov from Byline Times reported this. Boris Johnson's spokesman said the Prime Minister will transform the NHS into a, quote, blockbuster healthcare system in the age of Netflix. Asked repeatedly to explain what this means, Johnson's spokesman is unable to say which features of Netflix he believes the NHS should imitate. Um, Adam Bienkov does go on to, to clarify. He says, to be clear, Downing Street say the point of the analogy was the NHS is currently like Blockbuster, not that they want to be like Blockbuster. That's the defunct video rental chain, of course. And the health secretary wants to bring it into the Netflix age rather than they want it to be a blockbuster. So it makes ever so slightly more sense, but it still seems completely empty. Blockbuster became unnecessary because technology arrived, which meant people could stream videos from home. They didn't need to go to a brick and mortar shop, but people still need to see a GP. They'll probably always need to see a GP and there's no sign we can start getting operations from home. So I I don't see how the analogy works. And it is also, it happens to be an awkward week for the Tories to be going on about their management of the health service. This widely shared video was shot in an Essex A&E department on Monday night. We've currently got 170 patients in the department, that's 170, quite a few. There are 90 patients waiting to be seen at the moment, that's 90, 90 of you are still waiting to be seen. Our current wait time for a doctor is seven and a half hours. I will estimate that by the time I go home in the morning at 8 So what you were told if you went to accident and emergency in Essex on Monday night was that average wait times for a doctor is seven and a half hours. That's average wait times. She said for some people, the wait will get up to 12 or 13 hours. This is people going to A&E. She also said there are no beds whatsoever in the trust. So if you need to be passed to a different department, you're going to have to wait probably even longer. And this, I think, is is what really got me. While you're waiting, your relatives have to leave. So you're in A&E. You know, you're normally in A&E because you're in some sort of distress. It's not normally a nice place to be or a nice context to find yourself in. You might have to wait 12 hours and you'll have to do it on your own. Now, it's important to say this is clearly not because this particular healthcare worker, nurse or doctor or whoever she was, was being harsh and cruel. This is because the NHS is close to collapse under pressure. Um, Health Secretary Sajid Javid was played that clip on the BBC this morning, and this is how he responded. Of course, that's not anything that anyone wants to see. And, and, and I, I can obviously see the, see the nurse, I'm talking to you down the line, but whether it's her or everyone else working in the NHS, the, you know, I want to thank them for all that they're doing, the, the incredible pressures 
that they're facing uh, for A&E. Uh, unfortunately, because of the impact of COVID, when we, we know already from our NHS estimates that we think some 11 to 13 million people stayed away from the NHS because of the, the pandemic. Many of those people are coming forward, many of those to A&E, and we're seeing very high levels of demand. And that is a, that is a real challenge for the NHS across the system. That was Sajid Javid blaming long waits on the pandemic. And of course, I have no doubt that has played a role. There's some important context he didn't add, though, because the crisis in the NHS predates COVID-19. This chart shows how much annual spending has increased on the NHS under different governments. Between 1949 and 1979, there was an average annual increase in the NHS budget of just under 4%. That went down slightly under the Thatcher and major governments and hit 6% under the post-97 Labour governments. Then the coalition government comes in and those increases plummet to below 1%. And after 2015, they go up to only 1.5%. So historically low investment if we're looking at funding increases. That's, of course, important because the number of people who need the NHS sort of goes up every year because of an an ageing population. The effect of that funding squeeze was this. This is how the number of people waiting for treatment changed under the Lib Dems and the Tories. Gordon Brown's government got the number of people waiting for treatment down to just over 2 million. As soon as the Tories came in, it started increasing until it reached 4.5 million when we were hit by COVID. So that's before COVID hit. So NHS backlogs had doubled without COVID-19. This is a a Tory problem and a Tory Lib Dem problem, actually. It's not a COVID-19 problem. Finally, as well as comparisons over time, we can do comparisons across countries. This chart shows the number of nurses and doctors relative to a country's population. Germany has coming up for twice as many nurses per thousand people as the UK, and France has about a third more than we do. When it comes to doctors per thousand people, we are worse off than all of Germany, Italy, and France. And that continues when you increase the number of countries the UK is compared to. We are well below the EU 14 and the OECD averages. And we are absolutely put in the shade by countries like Slovenia, South Korea, and Australia. It doesn't have to be like this. We're not a poor country. There's no reason we shouldn't be able to train more nurses and more doctors so people don't have to wait 13 hours at A&E. And this is the issue. It's not, can we make it a Netflix? It's not, can we make people treat themselves at home? Because that would actually be a horrible way to do healthcare. It's how do we have more doctors and more nurses so there are more doctors and nurses to see people and they don't have to wait all that time, right? It's not rocket science. You squeeze the funding of an organization and it starts to work much less effectively. And when the organization we're talking about is the NHS, that's going to cost quite a lot of lives. Um, James, we talked about taxes. Do you think it's going to be the NHS that will... I suppose, really screw over the Tories that they should really be worried about at the next election and will probably be their, their biggest, most significant legacy. The fact that the thing is being run into, into the ground, it, it's, it's certainly a, a amongst their, their legacies. I mean, the trouble is with the, the Conservative governments we've had, Conservative-led governments we've had since 2010, is that there's a whole series of basically disastrous legacies that they've managed to produce. I mean, one of the reasons the NHS is under such pressure, it's not just that we have an ageing population, we're ending up with an increasingly unhealthy population as a result of things like austerity, uh, as a result of which you can start to see, for instance, life expectancy was falling even before COVID-19 hit. I mean, this is in a, a rich developed countries after decades, literally, 
of life expectancy improving as people's health in general improves, as things like the NHS uh, do their job, as diets improve, as people work differently. That's what you'd anticipate happening. And now life expectancy is falling. So that crisis is then entering into the NHS. You've suddenly got more unhealthy people around. You've cut other parts of the system. You've cut universal credit uh, uh, funding. You've cut various other bits of, of the welfare state. You've cut dramatically public health funding, which is supposed to be one of the things that's going to act as a preventative spending to prevent people becoming ill so they don't end up in the NHS. And the only thing, the system that's still kind of working in the middle of all this, because it's so, frankly, politically popular that people appreciate the NHS and they want it to stay there. And it's the only bit that's still kind of running is a bit that has to deal with the crisis elsewhere in society. Social care is the same thing. Social care funding has been running to the ground. It's in a desperate state, even before COVID-19 hit. And it's the NHS that has to clear up the mess from that. So in order to get the NHS working, you kind of have to solve all the other uh, minor or major disasters that the Tories have caused in the last sort of, pains me to say, this is in 2010, it's over a decade now that we've, we've had this. And that's partly why the NHS is under such strain. Fix these things or start to fix these things, get social care working properly in particular, the NHS starts to look in a better place. But you've also got to bear in mind I mean, Sajid Javid does not strike me as a, as a natural fan of the National Health Service. This is a guy who, who every Christmas, the story is he reads uh, selections from Ayn Rand, the, the libertarian author to, to his, I'm, I'm sure, long-suffering family. You know, this is not someone who's naturally inclined to think, hey, let's have a big government-funded public health provision that's free to everyone. This is not really where they're sitting. And there's a slight suspicion in all of this that actually, if the NHS is steadily undermined, if people aren't so committed to it over time, in the longer term, this isn't so bad for the Conservatives. And if you take a very long term kind of ideological view of what government might be doing, then perhaps you could steadily get rid of the NHS. And if it's being run down and people are abandoning it and going private, if they can afford it or just generally deciding it doesn't work anymore, that's not such a bad thing. You saw that happen under Margaret Thatcher. Support for the NHS started to fall as the NHS was being somewhat run down. Uh, it recovers under Labour because they do, as your graph showed, put some more money into it. So, of course, the thing improves. But if we're in this stage where it's being run down, then perhaps in the long term, the Tories might think, do you know what? It's not such a problem for us because people just don't believe in the system anymore. So it's important we fight for this. It's important we fight for the funding, not just for the NHS, but right the way across all the other messes that austerity in particular has created in the last decade or so. I know, especially sort of since COVID-19, or I suppose especially post-COVID-19, actually, the number of people getting, it's not routine care, elective care, so elective operations in, in the private health care system has massively increased because people don't want to wait a year or two to get their to get a new hip um, or whatever it might be so wealthier people are quite dramatically switching to private health there was a great sort of bit of research in the ft about that recently let's go straight to our next story britain should introduce a 15 pound minimum wage that's the conclusion of a new report from the progressive economy forum think tank and it's being promoted by labor zara sultana the cost of living crisis is unprecedented. People's living standards are being hit like never before. Poverty pay is rife and the national minimum wage isn't enough. It needs to be a real living wage, enough for people to actually live on. And research from the Progressive Economy Forum shows that it needs to be £15 an hour by 2024. The fall in living standards is the biggest since records began in the 1950s. Pensioners are riding buses to keep warm. Parents have to pick between feeding their kids and heating their homes. This shouldn't be allowed to happen in one of the richest countries in the world. And at the same time, big businesses are making massive profits. Last year, BP and Shell made around £20 billion in profit. That's expected to double to £40 billion this year. 
And this isn't isolated. Profits across the board are at record levels. The economy isn't broken, it's rigged. That's why trade unions are supporting a £15 an hour minimum wage. A new research from the Progressive Economy Forum shows that if this was introduced over the next few years, it would benefit millions of our lowest paid workers and tackle inequality. The research shows that nearly 14 million people would see a pay rise under these plans. A £15 an hour minimum wage would put more money in the hands of workers, giving them the same share of the economic pie as they had in the early noughties. And because better paid employees pay more in tax, we can use some of this extra money to help smaller businesses pay their workers a decent wage. Progressive Economy Forum's research shows that the poorest three quarters of households would see a 12.5% increase in their earnings. This government talks about levelling up, but this would actually do it. A £15 an hour minimum wage would see more than half of employees in the north of England and just under half in the West Midlands receive a pay rise, ending decades of poverty pay. It's time to transform our rigged economy. We need £15 an hour minimum wage by 2024. And we're talking about that report, not only because it has some interesting conclusions, but because it was co-authored by today's co-host, James Meadway. James, give us the elevator pitch. Why is a £15 an hour minimum wage a good idea? I think Zara covered that quite well. I mean, we, we've had a decade now of uh, people's wages going nowhere, that, that even at fairly low rates of inflation since what 2008 onwards, people's pay has not been rising fast enough. Uh, to keep up with prices. So you've already got entering COVID-19, people are underpaid. You hit COVID-19 and then we get this shock of inflation coming out the other side of it. And now people's wages in real terms, their purchasing power is falling very rapidly. Fastest rate, it says since the 1950s, that's official records. More likely, if you look further back, you have to go to the sort of industrial revolution, maybe the 1830s to find a period where people's living standards collapsing in the way that they are now. So it's, it's a disastrous thing to, to have to happen. What we're saying is, is very simple, really, that we just need to pay people more. If you want to deal with a situation where prices are rising very rapidly, one of the things you can do to get around that is to get more money to people, especially when they've just had a decade of not being paid enough, right? That's what the argument for £15 an hour minimum wage comes down to. And after sort of doing the modelling and going through the numbers and the rest of, the rest of this with, with Howard Reid, my, my co-author, you find that about 14 million people would get a pay rise on the other side of this, which is a huge, huge increase to, to people's incomes and living standards and the protection we find against the likely uh, inflation that we're going to see over the next few years or so on the official forecast. So that's a huge difference that you can make there. And mind sort of fiddling about cutting VAT or whatever, or, or you know maybe scraping a bit off the basic rate of income tax, it's a bit more cash for some people. This is a really serious way to end poverty pay in Britain protect people against uh, the inflation we now see and compensate them for the fact that basically wages haven't risen for the last decade. So that's why we recommend doing it. And we say, of course, it's affordable, perfectly affordable for a rich country like Britain to be able to do this. You know, most people will admit this would be a nice thing. I, I can't think of anyone who's saying it would be actively a bad thing if people got paid £15 an hour. The responses I presume you'll get either from people on the right or from the centre, is that if you pay everyone a £15 minimum wage, either that's going to put some firms out of business or make people cut those, those workers, lay those workers off. Or, um, and I suppose given we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, it's going to be the big one, is going to increase the prices of those goods and services that low-wage workers provide. Will this increase prices? 
which prices will it increase and sort of what's your response to that, that we've just got to sort of live with that and it's worth it? We don't think so. There's, there's two parts to that, really. The first one is that the inflation we're getting now, although there's a story and, and lots of people try and push it, whether they're the governor of Bank of England or occasionally West Streeting or, you know, many points in between, that we might have a wage price spiral that, you know, wages go up, so prices go up, so therefore, you know, to put wages in this disastrous sort of supposedly situation where every time you put up wages, people respond, firms respond by putting up prices. So people demand more pay increases, people put up prices. This kind of, this just isn't happening. Right. Prices are going up because of huge international factors. It, it doesn't make the blindest bit of difference to the price of gas that you're getting from Qatar if you pay nurses in Britain less. Cutting the pay of, of teachers or, or somebody who works in Tesco's or wherever doesn't stop Russia invading Ukraine. Right. These are the things that are driving prices right now. So it's kind of nonsensical to say, oh, well, we, we can't put up wages because we, we risk prices going up. Prices are already rising for a whole lot of things that have nothing to do with wages. What we're saying is you need to compensate people for this. And what we demonstrate in the report is that if you say, okay, we're going to just give a bit more of the economic pie, basically if we increase the minimum wage, £15 an hour, the slice of the economic pie that's going to people in work gets bigger, as you'd expect, because you're paying people more. But it only gets as big as it was under the last Labour government in, in the 2000s. If we could afford to give workers that size slice of the pie then, we can afford to give them that size slice of the pie now. So that's, that's the, the argument around prices and what's happening here. The other bit to throw in, of course, and this is the bit that really doesn't get talked about enough, is that, look, if prices are going up, but wages aren't going up, somebody somewhere is making a lot of money out of that. And it's not people being paid wages and salaries. It's somebody making big profits. You can see it really obviously. In the case of BP and Shell, last year between them made £40 billion profit. That is because prices have gone up, not changed anything they've done, not invented a new kind of oil and they're making more money out of it. There's not magic new gas they're supplying. It's prices have gone up, so they make more money. If we want to tackle the cost of living crisis, you have to squeeze profits to do that. You have to take on the profits that are being made. And one way to do that is to just increase the amount of pay that you're giving to people on the other side of, of that equation. So, so that's the argument there. Really, this is about redistribution. It's about giving people a fair slice of what we produce in this country and correcting for the fact we've basically underpaid people for at least a decade now. We are going to be talking in one moment about a group of workers who are fighting for higher wages, a group of workers who are in a position to demand higher wages and are you know, quite rightly doing it. Before we move on though, James, if people want to know more about that research and more research from the Progressive Economy Forum, I understand you're having a conference this Saturday. Very briefly, give us the pitch. We thought this was a good opportunity to get people together after, after the pandemic and say, look, there's an obvious economic crisis now, right? The cost of living crisis and then folding into the environmental crisis. Then the fact that really you, you look at the Bank of England, you look at all of the conventional politics, all of the conventional economics people have, they don't really know what to do. They say, oh, let's put up interest rates, even though it will cause recession. Let's cut people's wages, even though that's nothing to be price rises right now. They don't really know what's going on. There's a big opportunity here to win some of the ideas about how to run the economy differently. So that, that's what the conference is about. There's all sorts of people. If you Navarra regulars are speaking on, on various uh, panels there. Aaron's on one, Dahlia's on another, uh, Grace Blakely's on the third, alongside lots of academics and economic policy people. So I think it's going to be a really good day of discussion. It's at Greenwich University uh, this Saturday, 9.30 onwards. So um, look online, look at, at the Progressive Economy Forum website, and that's got the timetable, and you can get your tickets there. Let's go to our next story. The RMT has announced three days of national rail strikes due to take place on the 21st, 23rd and 25th of June. 
That's as well as a London-wide strike action on the underground on the 21st. This is how the mainstream media reacted. The biggest rail strike in more than 30 years set to cause midsummer misery. 50,000 rail workers will take industrial action over three days later this month, threatening to bring the train network to a standstill. It's, I was going to say, a car crash. That's the wrong analogy. It's a train wreck. You say you don't want to cause misery. You are causing misery. Is there not another way that doesn't involve going on strike? Does the means justify the end? You, of course, have an absolute right to strike and you have an absolute right to push hard for better pay and conditions and safety and all the rest of it. But you're actually holding the public to hostage. You're not really actually affecting your bosses. You're affecting ordinary men and women who won't be able to get to work, who won't be able to go on holiday. Also, there are so many events happening in that week and I, I suspect that's why you've picked that week. Um, there's Glastonbury, there's a huge Elton John concert, many other things, all of which are going to be severely disrupted and people's pleasure and enjoyment and functionality are going to be hit. You're basically holding the public to hostage. That's, that's what's coming through. It's not like a dinosaur from the 70s. You wipe off the, the misery you're going you're gonna to enforce on the working class people as regrettable. Seriously, regrettable? It's a little bit more than regrettable. All, and you're, you're suggesting that companies shouldn't make a profit and that if they do, they should give them to you? Seriously? You're suggesting that companies should share their profits with their workers? Seriously? Seriously? Yes, Carol. When people haven't had a pay rise in three years and when companies are threatening to make redundancies to people's colleagues all to increase shareholders' profits and when the cost of living is going up and up, yes, that's exactly what companies should be doing. Now, despite the furious opposition from people who all get paid more than what railway workers are demanding, the RMT's General Secretary, Mick Lynch, gave this calm account of why the strike has been called. In the last few minutes, Downing Street has uh, described the plans by the rail unions as selfish and thoroughly irresponsible. Let's get the reaction from the General Secretary of the RMT Union, Mick Lynch. Shall we? Hi, morning, Mick. Uh, what do you make of those words? Selfish and irresponsible, the government says. Well, this government is uh, our experts at being selfish and irresponsible. That's not what our union is, and it's not what the tens of thousands of ordinary men and women in our union are all about. We've been waiting patiently for two or three years for a real uh, pay rise and a, a pay offer. We ha haven't had that for the vast majority of the people involved in this dispute. What we've had in return for working all the way through the pandemic in the workplace, not working from home, running our transport services, is the threat of thousands and thousands of job cuts, the stripping back of services, the closure of virtually all of the ticket offices in Britain and the ripping up of our conditions. So we haven't had a, got a deal on pay for three years while inflation is rampant. We've got the threat of job cuts. We've got threats to the safety regime on our system. And our members have had enough, as have many British workers. We need a pay deal. We need job security and we need decent terms and conditions. That's what this dispute is about. The government have got the key to unlock that. They've cut the funding to the railway by two billion pounds. They're stopping the companies making proper offers and having proper discussions, and they need to loosen those shackles and make, get a deal so that we can avoid this disruption and these disputes. Of course, the government isn't interested in negotiating better wages or job security or supporting um, workers to do so. Instead, they prefer to break the strike through the law if necessary. Tory MP Hugh Merriman is head of the Transport Select Committee 
This was his proposal on the BBC's Today programme. You're saying the government should have put in place measures that would have made it illegal for some of the strike action to take place? Well, it's not so much making it illegal. It just uh, adds a requirement for there to be a minimum service obligation, as there is in those other EU countries I mentioned. Uh, If that's the case, then it means there's still some trains that operate, and it therefore makes it um, harder for everything to be ground to a halt. Bear in mind that we regard the rail as an essential service. That's why we kept it running during the pandemic for key workers. So if it was right that we kept the railway running then, it's surely right that we keep it running uh, during industrial action. Right. So are you saying the government could do that and ought to consider doing that now as an emergency measure? Well, I'm saying that the government committed, uh, if it was re-elected in 2019, that it would bring in uh, a minimum service obligation. Uh, it happens in other EU countries like France, Spain and Italy. Uh, and if the government wants to succeed in reforming uh, the railways uh, and getting through this industrial action, then it may well need that legislation in place uh, in order to strengthen its arm. It's a pretty gross argument. Railway workers continued to work during the pandemic, often at great risk, by the way. Many people on public transport, many people who worked on public transport died from COVID-19. And instead of rewarding these people for that very, very important effort, we're going to use them turning up during a pandemic as an argument to restrict their right to strike. Merriman even comes clean about the real reason for promoting this legislation later in the interview. It isn't about stopping disruption or about keeping the railway working. It's about strengthening the government's arm. In other words, weakening the bargaining position of the union, of the workers who provided that wonderful, brave service during the pandemic. James, who's going to come out on top in this standoff? I have to say the rail workers tend to be pretty good at striking and winning, don't they? No, it's good. And it should be an example for, for everyone else. I mean, it's, you know, the RMT is a very well-organized union. It's a well-organized industry. Uh, the tragedy here is that that's unusual, right? Private sector unionization. Now, the number of people working in the private sector, not the public sector, the private sector, in a union is about 12%, right? So it's much, much higher on the railways than that. So that's why they got this kind of industrial muscle. And that's why they got the ability to say they're going to go on strike, make that effective, actually win concessions. And I think they will this time. And, and it, you know, for all the flapping, say, oh, we're going to make it illegal to go on strike and all the rest of it. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to come to very much this time around. What we should take from this, what the RMT are doing, is that we need more of this. We need more trade unions, bigger trade unions, more people in unions, better organised workplaces and industries in order to try and win uh, the pay increases that people frankly deserve. Because you talk about inflation, cost of living crisis and how it's going to hit us. And oh, and, and I think it was Carol Malone saying, oh, it's like back to the 70s when you say you're going to go on strike. Look, the last time we had really high inflation, 70s and 80s, inflation even higher than it is now, you had unions many, many more people in trade unions, half the workforce in 1979, more than half in 1979 in a trade union, able to go on strike, able to protect themselves from that high inflation because they win pay rises. Today, all that has been smashed up. That's decades of Margaret Thatcher's government, attacks on the trade unions, legal restrictions and how they operate, changes in the industries we have in this country. So you you have new industries that have fewer union members in them. All that's gone and people are just left exposed to what is a shocking increase in inflation and with no protection for it. So it's good that the RMT are doing this and everybody should support them doing this because what you want to say is that we need more like this. We need more people organizing, more people prepared to go on strike and more people able to win those inflation beating pay increases. 
from Marky ZNO with a fiber. I'm cheesed off with the strike as I was going to see Nine Inch Nails better than Elton John. I still stand in solidarity with the union. So I just wanted to read that because I think that is, you know, absolutely the correct position. There's no shame in being frustrated when the railways aren't running. Obviously, we would prefer them to be running, but we would prefer them to be running because workers and bosses have come to an agreement because bosses have, you know, given up on their strategy of making people redundant after they've worked through a pandemic and not giving people a pay rise for three years. What you did say, though, is it's frustrating. And people in Britain do have good reasons to be frustrated with our railways all the time, whether or not there's a strike. For one, that's because it's really very expensive. Train fares per mile by country, when you're looking at Britain, 55p per mile. Um, In France, 29p. In Ireland, 27p. In Germany, 19p. And in Italy, 14p. So we are massively more expensive than in comparable countries. And it seems that much of this is because our railways are privatised. And so those high prices seem to have led the British public to want Britain's railways to be renationalised. A massive 60% support renationalisation, including majorities among Labour, Tory and Lib Dem voters. Which is perhaps why some people are resistant to the government's narrative on the railway strike. If that's the only way they're going to be listened to, then so be it. Somebody has to be held to account. People are struggling with what they're currently being paid because bills are getting higher and higher. And so you can understand why people are upset if they don't think they're getting decent pay deals or good working conditions. Trains aren't clean. They're not always running on time. They're probably the most expensive in Europe. So it makes you wonder what they're doing with the money if they're not giving it to their employees. Even though it's annoying, we have to support people who are striking because, you know, we've all been there. We're all um, mistreated at work and such, so. Pro-union, pro-strikes, pro-people needing to do what they need to do to get their wages up. Pro-union, pro-strikes, we love to see it. Next story. Conspiracy theories are often corrosive, paranoid and without evidence. Think the Rothschilds controlling the world or Navarra media being a Putin proxy. Are you watching, Paul Mason? Others, though, turn out to be true. Think the CIA plotting to kill Castro or the Telegraph controlling Boris Johnson. Well, it seems we now have a new theory we can put in that true pile. Chris Curtis is currently head of political polling at Opinion, but used to work at YouGov. Today, he posted a very revealing thread about YouGov's polling during the 2017 general election, which, you'll remember, saw Jeremy Corbyn finish just a few thousand votes short of entering Downing Street. Those were, of course, a few thousand votes that could have changed Britain forever. So, what has Curtis revealed about this high-stakes election? Well, he begins by quote-tweeting Andrew Fisher, former head of policy under Corbyn. Fisher was highlighting that it was the five-year anniversary of the 2017 election. And Chris Curtis writes, My experience of the 2017 general election was probably a bit different from Andrew's. Firstly, it is worth noting just how dramatically the opinion polls changed during the course of the campaign. This isn't how things are supposed to happen. Now, Curtis goes on to explain how the increase in Labour's polling was very dramatic and also very surprising for a pollster to see. They were all stunned by it and tentative about the results they were seeing and and publishing. Now, that's fair enough. They surprised everyone. This wasn't a normal election. And you can see why a pollster might want to double check those results before they put them out. But Curtis also highlights there was 
political pressure from above to suppress evidence of Labour's advance. The first example he goes into involves an MRP poll released on the 31st of May. This was a new method which projected who would win seats based on the demographics of the people who lived in those constituencies and how in those demographics people were responding to questions from from pollsters. Now, you might remember that poll because it was big news. The Times splashed it on their front page, of course, alongside a story about Corbyn and anti-Semitism. If you remember the mood at the time, you'll also remember that poll results like this weren't supposed to happen. Labour under Corbyn was supposed to be a hopeless lost cause, not a potential government in waiting. And we already knew that YouGov did receive pushback from powerful people after the publication of that MRP poll. This is an excerpt from Tim Shipman's 2017 book, Fallout, about what happened after the poll was published. So Shipman writes, Nadim Zahawi phoned Stefan Shakespeare, YouGov's chief executive, and said, quote, They'll be queuing up to shut you down if you're wrong on this. You've just moved the currency by 1.5%. I'm going to spare you the agony. I'm going to call for your resignation when you're wrong. Nadim Zahawi plays a key role in this story. You'll probably know him as the current education secretary, but back in 2017, he was a backbencher working in Theresa May's policy unit. And perhaps even more significantly, he was the co-founder of YouGov. Stephen Shakespeare is the other co-founder who Zahawi was threatening in that call. Shipman also wrote that during the election, YouGov bosses were told that Crosby was going around saying, quote, I put Populous out of business last time. I'm going to put YouGov out of business this time. Now, Crosby was Theresa May's campaign manager. As I say, those quotes we just gave you, they have all been in the public domain since Tim Shipman published his book towards the end of 2017. But now Curtis, this is the guy who was working for YouGov, has revealed something even more significant. It appears that YouGov buckled under the pressure. So he writes that as a result of the widespread pushback, our polling and coverage was a lot worse for the rest of the campaign. We did a fantastic debate bowl in the hours following the debate that Corbyn took part in. The results were stark. Corbyn won by a country mile and one in four Tory voters thought he was best. So one in four Tory voters thought he was best. He goes on to say, but despite having written the story and designed the chance, we were banned from releasing the story because it was too positive about Labour. So a leading polling company, probably the leading polling company, refused to publish the results of polling which put Corbyn in the lead, in the lead in the debate, so he, he won the debate, after the Tories threatened to destroy them. Now that sounds pretty fishy. Uh, Let's go on though. He also said, similarly, there were a few, quote, minor methodology changes for the final poll, which increased the Tory lead. This was done after pressure from high ups, and this seems very important, and despite protests from those of us who thought it wasn't okay. So he's saying the people who are working with the data, uh, they thought, you know, Labour were catching up with the Conservatives, their bosses, for whatever reason, you know, maybe it was those calls from Nadim Zahawi. Maybe it was just that they, for all oh, these polls, look too different from everyone else's. Whatever reason, they pressured people below them to change the algorithm. Now, this is extraordinary. A Tory MP and the party's campaign manager, that's Crosby, threatened a private company in order to mislead the public about Corbyn's successes. And it seems it resulted 
in them suppressing information that would have put him in the lead. It's also worth noting that after the election, Zahawi was very quickly promoted to a ministerial job. He became a minister in the business department six months into Theresa May's new administration. Um, James, you were working for Labour during that campaign. How surprised are you by, by the revelations in Chris Curtis's Fred? Sadly, not, not at all, uh, I suppose. It's, it's, polling's always um, something of a, of, a, of a dark art. It's always something that, that is, you know, you're trying to grab around for what might be the truth about what might happen in the future. What they had with the, the MRP poll that he's talking about there is this uh, re- really impressive, actually, it's a really clever way of trying to forecast what will happen. Which they released the first time, and it was the first time I remember the front page of the Times. I remember taking it around to everyone, pointing at this, and saying, "This is, you know, this is what the future looks like. This is what we should all be doing. In the future, do more MRP polls." And uh, also, this is, if you look at the results they got in that, it very closely matches the, the results of the, of the general election. But it was the first really clear evidence that we had that what you saw in the campaign, which was just huge numbers, growing numbers, turning out to campaign for Jeremy Corbyn, turning up to the meetings. There was this real sort of sense of momentum, small lip, uh, about that campaign was being confirmed by what you saw on the ground. And, and this was ahead of what the more conventional polling methods were telling you. So it was a, it was a key moment, I thought, for, for, for us on the campaign side to sort of see that what we knew or suspected was happening because the campaign was going well was turning into, into a kind of political reality that, that we actually saw delivered in 2017. But what you also get with polls is that, that this, this problem, not even necessarily the sort of direct manipulation, but this problem of a kind of group thing, that there's a strong incentive for any individual pollster to not step out of line with what everyone else is saying. The, the risks on the downside of you saying something that seems out of line and then it being wrong and your reputation is trashed are much bigger than the potential upside of getting something spectacularly right. I mean, the MRP poll was pretty spectacularly right. There was a couple, I think, Salvation on a conventional uh, polling method. It also called the election very early on, and they were mocked. So people might have seen the, the, the it's quite funny, the footage of Andrew Neil and various other people mocking this poor guy from Salvation who's defending his method. The guy from Salvation was completely correct, but there's a real incentive amongst polling companies to just be very conservative. At the time in 2017, that was exactly as you say. The common sense was there was no way Labour could win with Jeremy Corbyn as leader, therefore this can't be happening. So it's almost common sense. I mean, this is how ideology works in the end. It's not like there's a necessarily a conspiracy for everyone to kind of think the same. It's just that everybody sort of knows what's going to happen because everybody like them thinks the same thing. The really cutting bit on what Chris said was, was this potential for direct political pressure, which is over and above that ideology, that common sense, that shared view of the world everybody has that polling companies reinforce. That, I think, is, is a bit more of a smoking gun here. And, and it's it's not unreasonable for people to ask questions about you know, what exactly was said and whether pressure uh, was really applied to YouGov in this fairly direct way. I mean, it was kind of a truth waiting to be found, if you like. It was sitting there in Tim Shipman's book, but I think Chris has added uh, a bit more detail to that. I suppose why I introduced this with the idea of conspiracy theories is because it has been a long-running theme that when YouGov release polls, there is you know, a corner on the internet which is saying, this is a Tory front organisation, don't believe what they say. And the reason they say that is because it was co-founded by Nadeem Zahawi, who at that point was a, you know, a backbench MP, now is in cabinet. And so people say, well, presumably, um, if it was co-founded by a Conservative, then it's only going to put out results which are favourable to the Conservatives. Now, this has usually been dismissed as a conspiracy theory. I'm sure, you know, in that crude sense, it probably is. I don't think YouGov only published stuff which is favouring the Conservatives. But it does seem like there was something to it. You know, Nadeem Zahawi did call up the other co-founder who at that point was the CEO of the organisation. And by any account, 
Nadim Zahawi says it was a joke. I mean, it sounds like some pressure was applied. And for whatever reason, as Chris Curtis has revealed, pressure was put down the organization so that methods were changed. And methods were changed that didn't reveal the full extent of the popularity of, of Jeremy Corbyn, and especially that people perceived that he had won the debate. And obviously, those debates were a lot about momentum. So that does seem um, significant. YouGov have since um, responded to Chris Curtis's Fred. Um, so they released this statement. Chris Curtis's allegation that we suppressed a poll because the results were too positive about Labour is incorrect. There was a poll run by Chris following the debate in Cambridge on the 31st of May. When reviewed by others in the YouGov political team, it was clear that the sample of people who watched the debate significantly overrepresented Labour voters from the previous election. We take our responsibilities as a research organisation seriously and we could not have published a poll from a skewed sample that favoured any party. Now, Chris Curtis has responded. So he responded with a full friend. We'll just read you a couple of the tweets from it. So he said, on the methodology of the poll, it was done using the standard YouGov methodology that they use all the time. I'm almost certain it is exactly the same way as we ran this other debate poll, which nobody had any problem with us publishing. So we say this is a normal methodology. It seems pretty odd that they pulled this one. He also said, even if Labour were overrepresented, it would have been weighted to sort that out. Um, He goes on to say, either way, the most important finding of the poll, the one I wanted to focus on and thought was most important, was that a good chunk of Tory voters thought Corbyn had won. This is rare in a debate poll where results normally fall down party lines. And I think this is crucial. He says, this is a big story that I feel went untold, and which is why I mention it in my thread. So there was what a pollster thought was a very relevant piece of information that would have been useful for, you know, the electorate to know. But they were just a lowly data scientist and the person high above them who happened to be, you know, the CEO happened to be very close to a conservative MP who co-founded the organization. The people at the top of the organization were saying, don't publish this. So it poses some pretty significant questions. And as I say, as I you know, started this section by pointing out, given that election was so close and given the results of it were so significant, even if someone is to argue, well, look, is a poll that shows Labour closer to the Conservatives or Jeremy Corbyn winning a TV debate, is that really going to be critical in a, in an election? Like how many people is that going to persuade? Well, probably not many. But if Labour with a few more thousand votes could potentially form the government, then you don't have to influence that many people. You don't have to swing that many votes for it to have a massive difference in the election result. And as I say, in the entire history of this country. So it seems fairly significant to me. Um, and I think people will be you know, fairly suspicious of particularly YouGov in this instance. I think there are questions to answer. Obviously, I'm not saying that means everything they ever put out, you should reject. But this definitely has confirmed some suspicions, hasn't it? You, you, you can't really escape that. Let's go straight to our final story. Although, first of all, what I'm going to do is tell you about our fundraiser. We've been running it for a couple of weeks now. We've increased our regular supporters from 6,000 to 8,500. We're desperate to get up to 10,000. The reason we're really keen um, to get regular supporters is because it's, it's your support that makes the growth of this organization possible. It means we can plan for the future. You'll probably know if you're regular viewers, our normal ask is for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month because we're so keen to up our total number of regular supporters, as I say, to, to 10,000. What we're really highlighting now is just become a supporter, one pound, three pound, five pound. We know there's a cost of living crisis. Whatever you can afford, please do go to navaramedia.com forward slash support and we'll have the link 
below this video. We really do appreciate it. And thank you so much if you have donated already or signed up as a regular supporter already. It's what makes all of this possible. Let's go to our final story. Boris Johnson's slim victory in his confidence vote has caused a lot of hand-wringing for the Conservatives. It's also brought out some of the more bizarre characters in the party who've jumped to his defence. Adam Holloway gave the most aggressive defence of Boris Johnson's leadership, complete with printout. Look, the British people knew when they voted for him and gave him an 80-seat majority that they weren't voting for a Jesuit priest. We then went through the pandemic, where, in my view, the guy did quite brilliantly. He had a child. He nearly died from COVID. He was running what was effectively a wartime headquarters with over 300 pass holders, thousands more in other government departments. And what we've seen over the last four months is a drip, drip, drip of stuff that has amounted to nothing factually, but has actually really damaged his reputation with people like my constituents who send me emails saying things like, can I assure them that, you know, I haven't been to one of Boris's receptions for MPs? I mean, this is preposterous. He was not hanging out with his mates. He was hanging out with civil servants, many of whom didn't vote for him. But you admit he, the damage, though, to his reputation. Oh, I, I think there's great damage to the reputation of politics. And I, I think it's also, at some point, it should do great damage to organisations like the BBC. I mean, you, this, this programme that I'm on now was showing pictures of him looking like Hannibal Lecter at the beginning. Oh, come you know, on. Well, no, no, I, but, OK, I can, I can show you right here. Look at that. You've got razor blades. I mean, does that guy look like somebody who's, um, who's, uh, you know, been given a birthday cake or someone, you know, who's just been locked up for something at the Old Bailey? I mean, this thing has been blown totally out of proportion. All right. uh, let's come back to John Barrett. should be thanking this man. It's a very interesting defense. Um, everyone knew he broke the rules anyway. Why are we even talking about this? No one thought he was a Jesuit priest. And he says he did really well with COVID. He had a kid and nearly died. It's not necessarily the metrics I would use. I would say how many people died in Britain compared to elsewhere wasn't very good. And then he says the civil servants, you know, some of them voted Labour anyway. That doesn't have much to do with it. Uh, the argument that was put forward um, in the Sue Gray report, which as we talked about on the day it was released, actually let off Johnson lightly in a number of ways. What that said is he showed a failure of leadership and people were having parties consistently when the rest of us were locked down. Now, it doesn't matter what political party, sorry, those people were voting for. That, that fact remains. I have to say, I was actually slightly impressed that he had got around to using his iPad to screenshot the opening credits of Newsnight, even if it did make him look, you know, a little bit deranged. Let's go to another Tory MP. Lee Anderson took a similar line. The What's man it? who's lied to the Queen, lied to the House of Commons, lied to the public, I and they what, don't trust what him What people anymore. see, Geeta, is a witch hunt led by the BBC, led by the Labour well, Party the, and the mainstream. Well, Labour, me. It's you the Conservative, it's conservative MPs it's who voted, the BBC, not, not any of the media. had it in for Boris from day one. It's been a massive witch hunt. It's about time you got off his back. Let him crack on when the country. Come back and talk to me in two years' time when he's delivered on his promises, and then we'll see where we are There is no witch hunt, I can assure you, from no, there the BBC is a or any uh, of... My inbox is full of people complaining about the BBC all the time, saying it should be defunded. It's a massive witch hunt by you and the Labour Party and the mainstream media. You're on his case all the time. Even that, you don't want to let this drop, are you? You're going to go on and on and on. Well, the it's, just, the, it's, it's, it's not about sad. letting us drop, and it is not a witch hunt by anyone in the press. Our job is to ask questions of all politicians, which is what we do, regardless yeah. of party. 
That was Lee Anderson's lecture in media ethics. Now, you might recognize his face or his name because he was caught during the 2019 general election, essentially faking a door knocking exercise. He, he called someone to say, can you, can you appear at the door? Tell me that you don't really know me, but that you back all of our, our policies. It was caught on camera. Um, sorry, caught on the microphone. Um, unfortunately, I think that was in the Daily Mail. Very entertaining. Um, when Johnson's outriders weren't blaming the media, they were blaming people who'd lost loved ones to coronavirus. This was Brendan Clark Smith responding to Labour MP Nadia Whittam. How can you look your constituents in the eye, someone who went to their grandparents' funeral on Zoom, and tell them that you failed in your duty to force the Prime Minister to resign? It's not my duty at all, Nadia. And I'll, I'll be honest, I'm getting a bit sick and tired of people using personal tragedies and uh, what's happened with COVID to try and uh, further their party political agendas. And really, there are people who dislike Boris Johnson for winning uh, the general election. They dislike him for Brexit. Some dislike his character. And I, I, I find it really distasteful, I think, that the way COVID is continually being pushed as a way of forcing him out. So it's distasteful that people who lost loved ones during coronavirus and potentially didn't go to their funerals because they were following the rules are a little bit upset when it turns out that Boris Johnson and hundreds of people in Downing Street appear to have broken those rules. Now, I mean, all the polling shows, the people annoyed about this are not just people who didn't like Brexit. They're not just people who didn't like the Conservatives winning the 2019 election. And I don't really get what he means by saying these are just people who don't like Boris Johnson's character. I mean, they don't like Boris Johnson's character because his character has been quite fairly revealed. It's a little bit circular, that argument. James, I want to go to you on this. Um, what do you make of those performances from Boris Johnson's outriders? Well, it's, it's, it's a bit pathetic, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 who, was the, who was the first guy you had? Oh, I didn't recognise it. Andrew Bridgen or, or somebody else. Adam Holloway, sorry. He was there saying, well, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a party with his mates. He had to hang out with civil servants as this was like, you know, this is quite a terrible, awful thing to have to do. And then this sort of just generally flinging mud around from somebody like Lee Anderson. Lee Anderson, by the way, used to be in the Labour Party, used to be a Labour councillor even, but he got suspended for, uh, trying to, what was it, move boulders to stop travellers setting up a, a camp in his, in, in his, uh, constituency. He then defected to the Tories and became a, a Tory MP somewhere down the line, you know, not necessarily himself a, particularly pleasant character, let's say. So it's, it's kind of the, the sort of rogues gallery that gets dragged out to, to defend Boris in this way. And they're the only people you can really find to sort of string a few words together and try and say something, anything to get him through this. The sad truth, however, is that, look, the, the reason Boris Johnson's going to carry on being prime minister and probably him being prime minister for quite some period of time is that all the people who might oppose him would want to take over are too busy fighting amongst themselves for any obvious, clear alternative candidates to turn up. And that's basically what's keeping him here is that there isn't somebody else who can replace him. It might have been Rishi Sunak a few months ago, but his star has very much faded uh, in the last few months with the revelations about you know, non-dom status and tax and uh, all the other issues he's suddenly been confronted with. There isn't an obvious replacement for him. And so as long as Boris Johnson can maintain that situation and keep the rest of the Tory party squabbling amongst themselves about who might take over, he's going to carry on being prime minister, I'm afraid. It's no good expecting these people to do the right thing. Lots of people think, oh, he's a confidence vote. Maybe they'll go. Maybe they'll get rid of him. Don't expect Conservative MPs to do the right thing. That isn't going to happen. Boris Johnson's going to stay in place for a while yet, I'm afraid. James Mead, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you. And thank you all for watching. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. Do check out our fundraiser if you haven't already. Again, thank you so much. If you have already become a regular supporter, we really do appreciate it. 
For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.